This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 3rd of July 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Simon Brook joins me to chat through the day's front pages. And then... This week, I've been emailing with Derek Frost, who has written a book, Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS, that in part is about those years and the people who he lost and also those who made it. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, gives us his latest reflections. Also ahead, Monocle's Andrew Muller on what we learned this week. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. American troops pulled out of their main military base in Afghanistan on Friday, leaving behind a piece of the World Trade Center they buried 20 years ago in a country that could descend into civil war without them. More than 3,500 international troops were killed in Afghanistan. A Western diplomat in Kabul said Washington and its NATO allies had won many battles but have lost the Afghan war. American cybersecurity firm Huntress Labs says that about 200 US businesses have been hit by a colossal ransomware attack, believed to be by the Russian-linked Revil ransomware gang. The US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, a federal agency, said in a statement that it was taking action to address the attack which emerged on Friday afternoon as companies across the US were clocking off for the long Independence Day weekend. The UN Security Council has warned that 400,000 people in the Tigray region of Ethiopia are being affected by famine. Officials said as many as 33,000 children were severely malnourished and a further 1.8 million people were on the brink of famine as a result of the eight-month conflict. They also warned of further clashes despite the declaration of a ceasefire. And a warty pig named Elvis at Bristol Zoo Gardens has predicted that England will beat Ukraine in their European Championship quarter-final to be played in Rome tonight. Elvis and his fellow West Country pig Polly had correctly predicted England would beat Germany in Tuesday's game of the last 16 knockout stage by choosing to eat from a box marked with the cross of St George. On Friday, Elvis again opted to dine from the box with the England flag in preference to that marked with that of Ukraine, suggesting Gareth Southgate's side will progress to the semi-finals. Well, it's time now to have a browse through this morning's newspapers and I'm joined by Simon Brook, a journalist and communications consultant. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Georgina. What's your prediction? For the work for the Euro tonight, I, do you know I've got a horrible feeling that after the excitement, the, the the hubris of beating Germany, we might just fumble it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I really, really hope not. Uh, but I've got a horrible feeling that we're on a high, and then people just take it for granted, and then you know disaster strikes. But anyway, let, as I say, fingers crossed, it will work. Well, we'll get on to that because <laughs> I do think we've got to uh, discuss animal predictions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and footballers' yeah. haircuts, <laughs> very <possibly>. important. <laughs> but first, let's start with what we're uh, looking at in our headlines. The top story there: this pullout of Afghanistan, which is mentioned in many of the papers. The New York Times uh, has a big piece uh, they- on it. 
They do, that's right. Um, Eric Schmidt, who's um, a senior writer who covers terrorism and national security for the paper, is looking at the uh, <clears throat> what might be the duality, as he describes it, of President Biden's message, uh, his strategy on Afghanistan, or, or really, as Schmidt is implying in the piece, it's actually more about a contradiction. Um, you know, uh, that nothing has changed is the message from the White House, and yet we are pulling out, or the Americans are pulling out, uh, 3,500 troops, or they will do by September the 11th anyway. So the question is, can the Americans reassure Afghanis and the world that they really are still backing uh, efforts to, to counter the Taliban, or is it a sort of full-scale withdrawal, leaving the country to, to its own devices, really? And as I say, uh, Eric Schmidt in the in the New York Times, in, in, a, in a you know, it's, it's a sort of subtle piece. It's not attacking the president, but it does seem to be suggesting the really there really isn't much for strategy here. Uh, he says, questioned about the risks of the pullout, Mr Biden said, look, we were in that war for 20 years, 20 years. The Afghans are going to have to be able to do it for themselves uh, with the air force they have. So there's an element, I think, This is this a strategy or is this just, look, we need to get out of here and end this? Yeah, I mean, it's all very worrying. The Times of India has a piece uh, talking about how the Taliban is already imposing restrictions on women, uh, so n- not being allowed to work, not being allowed to go to school and, and, and so on, and how as they're taking over more regions and actually strengthening in the face of this American pullout, uh, women are the real losers here. I think women, absolutely, and the whole of society. I mean, we saw the horror of the Taliban, didn't we? Previously, uh, the, the 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 sort of it's, I was going to call it medieval, but it's even pre that in a mm. way, isn't it? And so, yes, I think the real fear about the world is what is what does this signal give not just to the Taliban in Afghanistan, but to other. Uh, Islamist extremists around the world. You know, is this, despite uh, Biden's general sort of internationalist approach, as we've seen, um, you know, and he's got a long history of, of, of great contacts with internet, with other countries and things, but for whatever reasons, is he about to sort of uh, put a sort of America first policy and step back from uh, America's role as, as global policeman that it's had for many years? Absolutely. Uh, let's switch to, to some UK news now. Uh, this is a story that, that broke early yesterday, but there was a, a sort of uh, a, um, an addendum to it, if you like, uh, later last night. As I was sharing flatbreads with friends, uh, the messages started coming through about Michael Gove and Sarah Vine's divorce. Now, she flagged this up herself. She writes for The Mail. Uh, and when when she wrote in her column that uh, she was referring to Matt Hancock, of course, the health secretary who's been forced to resign because he broke COVID restrictions whilst uh, having an intimate moment with an aide, um, she wrote that that's the way often of political marriages. Uh, and it was clear then that there was some kind of announcement coming from them both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were both saying, weren't we? Our own WhatsApp groups were buzzing with this. What does she mean by that? I think the problem Sarah Vine had was this is this is the problem she's always struggled with. I think being the wife of a cabinet minister, very much the insider or whatever, going to Buckingham Palace state dinners, but then also uh, being a uh, a journalist, which is all about being on the outside, if you like, looking in, questioning things, um, being willing to stir up. Uh, trouble and things and and how she's balanced the two I don't know I've no idea perhaps that is you know perhaps were a fault line in their marriage but I think the problem she had was that she's obviously teeing up 
the announcement this week, wasn't she? But uh, she she sort of has to write about it, doesn't she? Because it would look pretty dreadful as a journalist uh, if somebody else was breaking the story about you. And also, I suppose, just in communications terms, it does make sense, I suppose, for her to say it, because this is an opportunity for her to put the message out there, take the initiative if you like, and then everybody else responds to it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, an awful lot of gossip. Uh, and, and there are suggestions that there's going to be much more to this. Uh, and the Telegraph runs with that on, on their front page, talking about, well, I think a lot of this is actually linked to a tweet by Labour politician Diane Abbott, who said, has Michael Gove breached COVID regulations in the way that Matt Hancock did? This is obviously suggesting uh, some kind of indiscretion with, with a special advisor. Uh, now, a lot of people have have jumped on this. Uh, we know, of course, that uh, that Michael Gove's special advisor is a man called Josh Grimstone, uh, who has been lauded in the past for being, you know, the beefcake of Whitehall. <laughs> um, oh dear, that's that's, um, that's asking for trouble, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it would be really interesting to see yeah. where this story goes. And as yeah. you say, will Vine run it herself? I mean, she would absolutely shore up her future uh, at the newspaper if she did that. Uh, it would stop her being doorstepped and and all the rest of it. Uh, mm. If if she took control of the narrative, as you say, wherever it might go. I mean, I'm just hoping, because I can never unsee that Matt Hancock footage, <laughs> that we don't have another video. <laughs> Let's hope not. It's that and somebody carefully, uh, you know, overlaid, uh, you know, the, all the memes around it as well, exactly, which uh, the Alan Partridge uh, fumbling uh, video, audio, which which you can Google and find there, which just, I mean, I could watch about 20 seconds of it, then have to stop. It was just horrendous. But it is interesting, isn't it? that, uh, I mean, I, I worked in the press office at Tory Central Office when scandals arose and there the embarrassment was minister has a fair, you know, they'd have to go Tory sleaze, people appalled by uh, politicians' dodgy morals and things. I think it was interesting these days is that if you look at the sort of polling and I'm just listening to other people, Matt Hancock, it wasn't that just it wasn't that he had an affair. It wasn't that wasn't what did for him. It was the social distancing thing, wasn't it? So it's interesting now. I think that's the real question for Michael Gove, whether he had an affair or had an affair or not. Well, it's probably not such a big issue these days. The, the gender of the person he had an affair with, even that probably isn't a big story. It makes it more interesting, if anything, finally. <laughs> Flawed, exactly. There must be something, absolutely. Um, I think what's interesting here is, is the, the physical aspect, if you like. That's the real question. Did did he break social distancing uh, regulations? And if he did, obviously, like man Han Matt Hancock, I can't imagine how he could stay. Yeah, no, it's going to be very, very interesting. Also, the timing of it is really interesting. So you have the whole Hancock thing come out last week. Uh, and now, of course, the papers tomorrow are going to be dominated by whatever happens in the football tonight, um, and so, and I think that, that I think we will see this story developing and actually breaking out all over the Sunday papers tomorrow. Uh, kind of a little bit hidden in 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 all of that football stuff. Yeah, is it a good day to bury bed, bury so, bad news? Yes, I, wonder. I wonder. That that's a lot of people might be thinking, mightn't they? So I think we will see a bit of a split probably between the tabloids and the broadsheets. The broadsheets obviously will be more interested in this story, whatever England does uh, tonight in Rome uh, that will be more of a story for the for what used to be called the red tops which are the sort of the tabloid uh, papers but um, yeah I suppose the question is you know is it does a journalist and a, and a cabinet minister's consummate politician have they planned this carefully uh, to as I say bury this bit of bad news uh, amongst other stories. Simon thank you do stay with us because we're going to hear from our editor-in-chief next but after that I'd like to bounce back and uh, chat through some more of the front pages with you. Now though, let's go to Andrew Tuck. 
It's a long, long time ago. I'm working at Time Out magazine in London. It's when the offices are in Covent Garden. Michael, one of the receptionists, calls my phone to let me know that there's someone to see me. It's a food PR called Connell Walsh. He's standing there with a box of bread made with sprouted wheat. He's a bit older than me, short, fit, immediately funny. After delivering his pitch about the Lowe's health benefits, he explains that his offices are just on the other side of Covent Garden and that, if I want any more bread, I should just call him and he'll skip across the piazza and bring more. We're going to be friends. There are dinners at his house with fun guests, including people from his home nation of Zimbabwe. And his then-partner, Julian, too, drinks with London's food greats. There are nightclubs, a holiday in Mykonos. But all too soon, I'm standing in a packed St Bride's church in Fleet Street, reading a eulogy at his funeral. Another person taken by AIDS. Indeed, I've been in this very church with Connell for the service of another friend, the journalist Les Daly. And Michael, the often biker-leather-dressed receptionist, will also die from complications arising from AIDS. This week, I've been emailing with Derek Frost, who has written a book, Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS, that, in part, is about those years and the people who he lost, and also those who made it. Connell is one of the book's cast. In the end, it's an uplifting read because Derek has led an extraordinary life with his partner, Jeremy Norman, including the founding of AIDS Arc, an organisation that helps people impacted by HIV in places such as Southern Africa. But there's a lot of bruising sadness on those pages too. I met Derek and Jeremy all those years ago because Connell took me as his guest to their house in London, a whole end of a muse filled with art and design to perfection. I sat next to the film director, John Schlesinger, who then invited me to dinner at his house in Kensington. You just met a lot of people when you were with Connell. But reading this book made clear something else, perhaps something that you think about too. How skilled we are at offering differently nuanced takes on who we are, depending on the audience, what we want, need from people. There's a moment in the book where Connell knows that he is sick and he tells Derek that he will kill himself when things get really bad. I wish he'd told me about those feelings. Of course, he had partners, lovers, far closer than me to confide in. But it did make me wonder, did I misread things? But like many people faced with serious illness, he took a decision to keep his diagnosis something of a secret and chose instead to live life full on. I didn't keep a diary back then, so unlike Derek, I cannot remember the exact sequence of events. There was that holiday to Mykonos, though. I had never been before, and Connell was oddly insistent that we go. We stayed in a very humble cottage on a hill, and one morning we counted up how much cash we had left. I think we may have been robbed, said Connell. We totted up what we were spending on meals and drinks, and we quickly realised that living it up and not a thief dressed as a shepherd was the cause of our penury. Perhaps we should skip some of the cocktails, I suggested. Don't be silly, this is what American Express was invented for, said Connell. I have returned to Mykonos many times over the cascading years, and the cafe under the windmills where we had breakfast every morning is still there. Well, the building is. And I always smile as I pass, as I catch a glimpse of her sitting under the whitewashed rattan awning. But as we did sit there, I presume that Connor knew or feared what was ahead. 
There are so many amazing stories in the book, not least how Derek and Jeremy, in the early days of the crisis, both went to be tested, and how Derek got the all clear and Jeremy didn't. He tested the very same week as Connell. And how love, luck, allow them both to be here today. Then there's Derek's successful career as a designer, Jeremy owning legendary nightclubs including Heaven. But for me, reading this at home on a sullen London day, it left me thinking with crisp clarity about a happy man and his offer to skip across a piazza. Being missed, never dimmed, is a potent legacy. And this book makes so many people shine once again. Many thanks to Andrew Tuck there, paying tribute to our mutual friend Conan Walsh. And Simon, it's odd, isn't it, to think that AIDS was incurable, it was a death Mm. sentence. Mm. Uh, And now, of course, that's not the case. Mm. Uh, And we're seeing that whole medical revolution happen again Mm. with coronavirus, something that was thought you were a goner. And and now, you know, with with the vaccination, that's hopefully most Most cases. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, Andrew Sullivan, uh, the the writer, US, he's based now in the US, but... uh, he was making the comparison, having grown up in the AIDS era, about how, yes, AIDS was had an effect on people, obviously, that, that it made people withdraw and, and made any kind of social contact or sexual contact very, very dangerous or whatever. But then, obviously, there are, uh, there are cures and there are ways of handling it now, as you say, due to advances in, uh, in, you know, in medicine and things. And that's obviously what we're seeing. Yeah, the interesting parallel now with coronavirus, isn't it, that the vaccine and things is actually allowing people to... Uh, politicians included to <laughs> to connect as well isn't absolutely it? and yeah. to travel again i yes. mean although oh, yeah. the rules here in britain are so unclear who yeah. knows where you can go and when although yeah. some people uh, did and have traveled to rome although there wasn't enough time between england uh winning in 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 that uh semi yes. quarterfinal match yeah. uh and and the game coming up tonight for people to yes. do the, yeah. the quarantine so i think a lot of very very disappointed fans who really wanted to be in rome tonight to witness what they hope will be England's <laughs> first victory over Germany since 1966 in a big game like this um, and uh, yeah. just not going to be able to make it. No, well, apparently the opposition fans outnumber them eight to one at the moment, quite how that works, how they got into Rome, whereas the British, the sorry, the English fans didn't, I don't know. But it's interesting that the that uh, there's been a sort of call for expats living in Rome to to go and pick up those tickets and go and see them go and see the game you know yeah. to see if uh, you know they can add to their voice to the crowds and and encourage England to to get a victory uh, now the FT is clearly in Rome this weekend because they had lunch with Matteo Salvini uh, in the city uh, and uh, it's a it's a great piece by Miles Johnson uh, tell us about this yeah very uh, completely different uh, from the sort of the the English uh, the England fans in Rome, I should think, a very swish uh, uh, restaurant in Rome, and the FT makes the point that Salvini has talked about thieves in Rome attacked Rome as you know the the the, the centre of the political elite that ignores the rest of the country, or whatever, and yet here he is air uh, kissing. <laughs> presumably at social distance, uh, in this very sh- uh, chic uh, restaurant or whatever, and, and having lunch, this regular uh, piece in the uh, FT every Saturday. And what comes across is that here is a consummate politician. Um, it's quite interesting that uh, the paper makes the point that you know his position has changed in so many ways. I mean, he's now part of this emergency unity government led by Mario Draghi, the former European central banker, uh, and uh, the FT makes the point that the Draghi government is staunch 
pro, staunchly pro-EU, Salvini very much against it, and also joined with other uh, populist leaders across Europe to attack the EU for becoming a, uh, a super state. But anyway, never mind, park that. That, um, that the new Italian government is aligned with NATO, even though Salvini has long expressed his admiration for Vladimir Putin. And the FT points out that, uh, the, the, again, the new Italian government is very much a close ally of the Biden administration, even though Salvini was a MAGA hat-wearing President Trump supporter. So anyway, according to, uh, to, to Salvini, quoted in the article, Europe has changed, the world has changed, the United States has changed, the economic dynamics have changed, we have we have certain values and those remain. But of course the question is, will his supporters forgive him for dumping so much of you know his previous policies to throw himself in with this uh, this technocratic government mm, which which kind of reflects what marine le pen has done in france yeah absolutely so the question is i suppose that uh, she has lost support you remember last sunday uh, she she was disappointed by the uh, French extreme rights uh, uh, performance in the elections. And the suggestion there was that at some extent she softened her tone. You know, she's more pro-EU, she's softer, uh, on more, more in favour of the euro now, all those sort of things that she was staunchly against at one point in an attempt to broaden her appeal. But the problem is she's also disillusioned those really hardcore supporters who thought, oh, she's sold out, and so they stayed at home. Mm. Obviously very low turnout last weekend. So the question is, I suppose, will... How does Salvini, uh, you know, handle that? How does he tread that tightrope between appealing to the really angry people, but at the same time broadening the appeal and being more pragmatic? Absolutely. Uh, right. Well, speaking of pragmatism and uh, so on, and indeed a deep a dose of cynicism too, I think we should join Andrew Muller with what we learned this week. <laughs> This week, that the Giuliani name is perhaps not the rock-solid brand that it once was, at least as far as denoting sagacious political leadership goes. No, really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Well, quite. We learned that the bid of Andrew Giuliani to excel his father, Rudolph, by becoming not merely mayor of New York City, but governor of New York State, had struck something of a snag. New York, New York. Yes, very evocative. A straw poll of state Republican leaders put Giuliani Jr. at a somewhat discouraging 0%. This setback descended a matter of days after Andrew's dad had been suspended from practicing law as a consequence of his efforts to insist that the 2020 US presidential election had been, unlike his own hair dye, fixed. So we would appear to have learned that if one of your family line ever finds themselves ranting frantically in defence of Donald Trump outside a Philadelphia gardening centre between a crematorium and a dildo shop, maybe give it a couple of generations before seeking office again. Let's have that agonising gear change sound effect. 
For we also learn that it's surprisingly difficult to affect a seamless switch from a story involving Rudy Giuliani to a story involving Ukraine. You'd reckon there'd be something there, especially since we learned about this earlier this month. I want very much to see that our two countries are able to work together. How Giuliani cajoled the Ukrainian presidential advisor on the other end of the line, first promoting debunked conspiracy theories that Ukraine, not Russia, was involved in US election meddling in 2016. Anyway, only another 18 weeks or so until the first anniversary of Giuliani's last stand at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, start planning your costumes. Because, actually, this works pretty well on the subject of planning costumes. Maestro, the Ukrainian national anthem. The many morbidly obsessive listeners of this segment will recall that we gave this rousing tuna thrash a few weeks back when we learned that the shirts to be worn by Ukraine's football team at the ongoing European Championships were inlaid with a map of Ukraine which includes Crimea, presently occupied by Russia. We learned this week that Ukraine had found a way to ratchet this exemplary trolling up. Yet another notch. Yes, yes. Following Ukraine's stirring defeat of Sweden on Tuesday night to reach the quarterfinals of a tournament which Russia is very much no longer in, <laughs> we learned that Ukraine's entire cabinet had reported for work on Wednesday morning wearing the team colours, inlaid maps and all. As big fans of international sporting tournaments being repurposed as arenas for the winding up of one's real-world foes, we're hoping to see much more of this should Ukraine progress past England on Saturday evening, possibly including the adoption by Ukrainian fans of a well-loved English pre-cup final football chant, as now handily translated into the Russian by our football hooliganism desk chief, Paige Reynolds. One, two, three. And we learn not only that there's someone worse off, but precisely who they are. And the fact that you can now hear a song by Moose should have you well braced for something ruminant related. The unfortunates are two Australian nude sunbathers whose enjoyment of a beach south of Sydney, we learned, had been interrupted by an inquisitive deer. <laughs> Is that actually a deer noise or have you just pressed the goat button again? Whatever. For reasons maddeningly obscure as of this broadcast, the unclad day-trippers were sufficiently startled by the marauding antler owner that they bolted into nearby bushland and called the cops. A search and rescue operation involving a helicopter... Involving a helicopter... eventually recovered the pair unharmed, but they were fined $1,000 each for breaching COVID-19 regulations by being there in the first place. 
So we learned that the total bill for their outing was not merely a fright, humiliation, the knowledge that the world was laughing at them and $1,000 each, but hearing New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller speaking of them thus. Look, I think as the health minister said yesterday, it's difficult to legislate against idiots, but, but you know... And we learned that, even worse than that, this pair of hapless and indeed trouserless blokes, both saved and punished by the New South Wales justice system following their encounter with the deer, had simultaneously delighted the world's professional punsmiths and horrified their readers or listeners, as stories involving deer always do. <sighs> And we, for one whimsical news monologue, thought that this story of humanity returned abruptly to nature deserved better than the cheap shots about buck naked, which largely adorned it elsewhere, and have gone with something more literary and highbrow, as befits a tale of bison men. Peasants. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. I'm not sure that there's a punishment big enough. I know. I just thought, I don't, please don't. Oh, God, you've done it. Yeah. Well, thank you to Andrew Muller for lightening our Saturday. Uh, look, I'm not a football fan. I'm really not. And I don't know why really? I keep returning to this subject. But it really is, even for someone who doesn't follow it, the fact that England is facing Germany tonight in Rome. No, Ukraine. We beat Germany, Sorry, remember? sorry, Ukraine, yeah, yeah. Ukraine. Oh. Um, yeah is exciting. It is it is very exciting. Yeah, and what's exciting is will they win as I say will will they fumble it or will they actually pull it off? The other thing is is what hairstyles will we see? I mean that's what <laughs> that's what will be gripping those fans from both sides, won't we? Won't they? Well, the Guardian certainly has a big piece on that lovely headline. It's curtains for short hair as Jack Grealish resurrects centre party. Yeah, it, yes, it, yeah, this is I didn't realize this is what it's called, but it is that that big centre sort of bouffant hair with a big centre parting uh, is called curtains apparently. And they've exactly they've also got a a, a still of Hugh Grant in in 1994 in uh, four weddings and a funeral of course. Which which is the sort of film that made him, and there he's got the the equivalent, or whatever. So um, and David Beckham too. Yes, exactly. So it didn't do badly for him. So this is this is the hairdo you want. I mean, my my nephew's a footballer, and uh, he's got a trial for a club. Uh, I think oh, very, coming up very shortly. So I'm going to tell him, mate, get get those curtains get that, going. Get the curtains. <laughs> um, and they're also they're also referencing um, Oscar Wilde. There's a picture of Oscar Wilde in yes, 1880 with the same hairstyle, <laughs> which I think is fantastic. Um, and Listen, I also think we need to talk about um, psychic pigs. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So if you're <laughs> going to put some money on <laughs> uh, for the the match tonight, then yeah, consult a pig. Apparently, that's the story, isn't it? That uh, uh, that uh, pig predictions are uh, Newcastle uh, psychic, for instance, is one of the is, is one of the many pigs apparently who's managed to get it right, um, managed to sniff out of it. Susie, a fifteen stone porker, uh, has a. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> her weight is relevant. Yeah, no, sorry, Are you fat shaming the pig. <laughs> fat shaming the pig. Sorry, Susie. <laughs> I was going to say you can afford to lose a few pounds, which you probably will at some point when you go off. To... Anyway, we don't want to. We won't frighten you thinking about that. Oh, but... uh, we could lose a few pounds if her prediction is incorrect. Yeah, exactly. She better get it right. I don't care. Otherwise, she'll definitely be going off to the uh, abattoir if she gets it wrong. So yeah, I haven't seen what she predicted. What she predicts for tonight, but certainly amazingly, yeah, she predicted England's victory against Germany uh, uh, 
earlier in the week. Well, so, and uh, in our headlines, we're talking about the warty pig uh, <laughs> called Elvis, um, who has predicted the, the win tonight. Uh, oh, the, oh, I didn't see that. that. Yeah, right. that, that Britain will win tonight. So right. if you have faith in Elvis... Yes. Um, and a I pig know, called Elvis. Yes, yeah, go then, on. <laughs> then then that's, you know, you know, you know what's going to happen. I, well, I've got to do it. I've got to put a, have a bit of a flutter if Elvis says, haven't I? Definitely. Absolutely. Um, I think we're going to have to end it there. Cause... Before it gets even sillier. <laughs> exactly. Simon Brook, thank you very much thank indeed you. for joining me on Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. The show returns at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>